matters for many reasons, but chief amongst these four Christians is it matters because Jesus talked about truth. In John's Gospel, we have him saying three things about truth. He says that he is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. In saying this, Jesus is saying he is the embodiment of who God is. You want to know the truth about God? Then look to Jesus. He's also saying that he's the embodiment of what it means to be a fully alive person. What it means to live a life of obedience to God. What it means to be fully human. You want to know what it means to be truly alive, truly a person? Then look to Jesus. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. On my desk, I have a big uh, pot. In that pot, I have loads of keys. I've probably got about 50 keys in that pot. They've all got different colored tags on them. I know probably about what a third of them do. Two thirds, I have no idea. Somewhere there is a key for every door in my life. Occasionally, I get the right key for the right door. Have the right key, the door will be opened, and you'll be set free. Jesus says, I am the key to life. The truth will set you free. Free from wrong patterns of thinking, free from destructive lifestyles, free from whatever enslaves us. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And Jesus says that the truth will enable us to be holy. John 17, verse 17, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus, the prayer where he prays that the church would be one as he and the Father are one. Jesus says this, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The word will enable people to live holy lives, lives pleasing to God. In our reading this morning, we see in the life of the early church a dispute arising. A dispute arising over truth. The issue at hand is this. How are people to be reconciled to God? How are those who are far off to be brought close to God? How are those who are dead to be made alive in God? How are those in darkness to see the light of God? The answer of the church has been in Jesus. In Jesus we're reconciled to God. Through Jesus, we discover new life in God. In Jesus, we see light in the darkness. In Jesus, what was dead is made alive. But is faith in Jesus enough? Or do we need something else as well? In the ancient world, there was a great religious divide. A divide between the faith of the Jews and the religions of the Gentiles. The Gentiles is a a catch-all term for all those who are not Jewish. The Jews worshipped one God, 
the Gentiles worship many. This was a divide between true and false religion, between true worship and idolatry, between light and darkness. God has spoken to Abraham, to Moses, and the prophets. He'd rescued a people from slavery for himself. They were to be his possession, his nation. They were to demonstrate his life to the world. And he gave them the law that they might know how to live, that they might know how to worship, that they might know how to live lives pleasing to him, that they might keep themselves distinct from the nations around them. Those days, there's no immigration or emigration. There's no port authority. There are no walls dividing uh, nations or fences to keep people apart. Nations were culturally distinct, not physically divided. And the laws, the law with its regulations and taboos, its food laws and rituals, marked the Jews off from all others as his people as his possession. And the greatest marker of all was the mark of circumcision, by which every Jewish male was signed as being a member of the covenant people of God. But now the good news of Jesus of Nazareth is preached. The story of told of his death and resurrection. And it's preached to both Jew and Gentile. Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Not just the King of the Jews, but the King of all people. Jesus has risen from the dead, that all might have life. A light shines in the darkness for Gentile and Jew. He has come for those who are near and those who are far away. And all those who believe and trust in him are baptised. They're baptised together in the name of Jesus. Jewish converts and Gentile converts. The Jewish converts to the faith continue in their religious observances. They keep the cultural practices of their fathers. They still go to the synagogue. They pray in the temple. They keep the food laws that they grew up with. But for the Gentiles, it's different. This is not their inheritance. This is not their culture. This is not the the diet that they know. There's no requirement for them to be circumcised as converts to Judaism or to keep the ceremonial law of Moses. Indeed, it's been preached by Paul and others that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. That by his death and resurrection, the old sacrificial system of the temple has come to an end. A new day has dawned. A new nation is being formed. A royal nation. A holy people. The walls of division have been broken down. The divide between God and man has been uh, taken away. The division between Jew and Gentile has been uh, done away with. In Christ, two have become one. 
And so we have a, a new people, a church, a new temple, the people of God, a new dwelling place for the Spirit of God, those who confess faith in Christ, Jew and Gentile together. Jewish believers still keep the law of Moses. The Gentile believers know nothing of it. And then a dispute arises. Verses 1 and 2 from Acts 15. Certain people came down from Judea and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. These teachers were quite willing that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, should be preached, that Gentiles should be converted, that Jew and Gentile could be baptized together. But for them, for Gentiles, baptism must be followed by circumcision. The words of one scholar, Jesus might be the way and the truth, but Judaism was the end. These false teachers required faith in Jesus from their converts, but they also added the necessity of following the law of Moses. They were teaching that faith in Christ alone was not enough to be reconciled to God. Now, this might seem like an obscure historic argument, but there are contemporary parallels. When Sally and I lived in London, she was invited uh, to go along to the church of a friend, a big church that met in the centre of London, uh, a vibrant church. She went along and uh, they met in one of the theatres in the middle of Leicester Square. Uh, She entered their Sunday worship. She couldn't believe the number of people there. A real diversity. Rich and poor, black and white, uh, worshipping together. The music was fantastic. The preacher was inspirational. But the message was disconcerting. Unless you are a member of our church, you're not a Christian. Unless you're baptised by our leaders, you cannot be saved. Unless you give to our church, God will not accept your offering. You may not encounter a false teacher in your church, but you can encounter false teaching in your thinking. The Christian who feels they must earn God's approval or do something extraordinary to earn God's favour or his forgiveness, has fallen into the same error. Jesus is enough. Faith in Jesus is the key. Not Jesus plus, not faith in Jesus and, but Jesus is enough. The apostles and elders meet together. A council is called. They get together to thrash the issue out. Paul and Barnabas, the leaders of the Gentile church, make their report. 
Their opponents are invited too, and they give their case. Verse 5. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Peter speaks of his experience of seeing non-Jews coming to faith in Christ. He concludes that they're reconciled with God the same way as everybody else. Not by obedience to the law, but by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him. They're reconciled to God not by what they do, but in whom they trust. Finally, James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, stands up. And he gives the verdict of the council. James was the brother of Jesus. James was the leader of the Jewish church, the church in Jerusalem. In fact, in the dispute, it was men who claimed to be sent by James who were causing all the problems. James had stayed in Jerusalem when persecution struck. He is a godly and a holy man. His nickname is Camel Knees. Want to see how you do that one? <laughs> He's called that because he spends so much time on his knees in prayer. His knees have grown calluses. His verdict is this. He notes the testimony of Peter, the witness to the faith of the Gentiles. He concludes that the words of the prophets are in agreement. He quotes from the book of Amos, the Gentiles are to be brought in. Taking into account the testimony of the apostles, seeking the affirmation of the witness of Scripture, Speaking of the witness of the Spirit, he gives the council's decision. A letter is to be written and sent to the Gentile churches. It's going to outline what it means for them to be faithful followers of Jesus. The consensus of the council and of the church ever since is that reconciliation with God comes through faith in Christ apart from any human work. On this point, there is to be no compromise. But for the community to flourish, for Jew and Gentile to live side by side, there must be sensitivity to one another. Some adjustments must be made. And so four requirements are given for the Gentiles in order that they might live peacefully with the Jews in the church. These are the four. They're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. They're to abstain from blood. They're to abstain from the meat of strangled animals. And they're to abstain from sexual immorality. Three of those injunctions are cultural and one is ethical. The concerns of James and the leaders of the church are that in the church's life they are to be in harmony 
and they are to be holy. They're to be in harmony with one another. Jew and Gentile believer are in conflict with each other and uh, they're trying to dial down the heat of that conflict. These were big issues for the Jewish believers. They'd grown up uh, seeing idols as taboo. Seeing meat with blood in it, meat from strangled animals, as being absolutely beyond the pale. They still kept to their practices of not eating this kind of meat. And in the church's life together, they were going to have a lot of meals together. They would gather in one another's homes. They would share fellowship with each other. They would provide hospitality for each other. And so James says to the Gentile believers, don't make it difficult for your Jewish brothers and sisters. You don't have to keep all of the food laws. You don't have to adopt a kosher diet. But don't make it difficult. Keep from these three foods. Don't have them at your meetings together. And this way you won't be providing a stumbling block for your Jewish brothers and sisters. So it's a uh, desire for the harmony of the church. And there's a desire too for the holiness of the church. The Gentiles are to abstain from sexual immorality. seems that there are some in the church who are saying, well, we don't need to take any reference of the law. Those commands of God in the Old Testament, they're to be done away with, just as the food laws are to be done away with. And James says, not so fast. The law of Moses, described as the law, had several components. Some of these were ceremonial They were to do with the life of faith, worship in the temple, uh, sacrifices that were to be offered. And the church is quite confident in saying, these have been fulfilled in Christ. You no no longer need to offer sacrifice in the temple, for Christ has offered himself as sacrifice. There's no longer any need for a scapegoat, Because Jesus is the scapegoat. You don't need to offer a a lamb to be slain. For Jesus, the lamb of God, has been slain. You can worship in the temple if you want to. But there is a new temple, a far greater temple. And that temple is the people of God. The ceremonial components had been fulfilled in Christ. There were cultural components too. Those markers that separated the Jewish people from their Gentile neighbours. Rules to do with what you could touch, what you couldn't touch, what would make you clean or unclean, how you would dress, what food you would eat. And the church says these are matters of taste. These are matters of culture. For the sake of the harmony of the church, we want you to keep some of these and let go most of these. But let us be absolutely clear, these cannot save you 
or deliver you. And then there were ethical or moral components of the law. And these are not set aside. These find their fulfillment in Christ. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The law is given that people might know how to live. What a life pleasing to God looks like. What it means to live a holy life. A life that will know God's favour and his blessing. And the Lord described this for people in the Old Testament. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Honour your father and mother. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Don't be jealous. And the church says these have not been set aside. This was God's standard for his people in the Old Testament. This is God's standard for his people in the New Testament. God still wants his people to live holy lives, lives pleasing to him. Indeed, one of the works of God's Spirit is that he will take the law of God, the moral law, the law that shows how we should live, and he will write it on his people's hearts. Christians will keep these laws, not simply because they're in a written code, but because the Holy Spirit compels them to, because he convicts us when we fall short. So abstain from sexual immorality. You don't get a pass on that one, Gentile believers. So to conclude... What can we learn from this passage of events 2,000 years ago? A church council in a place far, far away from a time long, long ago. We can remember that truth matters. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, says Jesus. The truth will set you free. The truth will make you holy. The truth is worth contending for as Paul and Barnabas did. We can be reminded that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, will be challenged in every age. We must hold fast to that good news. We must remember that we're saved, we're reconciled, put right with God, by grace, through faith, that we might do good works. We cannot add to what Jesus has done for us. Nothing more is necessary from our side except to trust in him, to confess where we have gone wrong and align our lives with his will for us. But that needs to be uh, restated afresh in every age. And thirdly, just as the church did uh, 2,000 years ago, we can seek for harmony and holiness in our church's life in St. Giles. Be aware of those cultural things that might divide us, that might separate us. Our preferences, our upbringing, our background, the way we like to worship, the way we like to do things. And we can seek holiness in our church's life. God's will for his people is still 
that we be holy, that we be distinct, that we be different in the way that we live our lives. And that our lives are a testimony, a witness to the grace and power of Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you continue to keep on teaching us through your word and by your spirit. Lord, remind us afresh of the truth of the good news of Jesus. Help us afresh to trust in him and not to add to what he has done for us. Lord, where we're tempted to compromise, keep us faithful. And show us what it means to seek uh, your harmony and holiness in our church's life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.